knows our strengths. He knows our weaknesses. See, we want to share when things go well to other people, but when things go bad, we don't want to share with others. But yet, the heart of Jesus for his people. And as, if you turn back to Luke chapter 19, what we have here is Jesus is coming into Jerusalem. It's the triumphal entry. You know, we, those of you who've grown up in church or understand the story, you know, go get that colt that hasn't been ridden on. This is a fulfillment of the prediction of Scripture. Back in the Old Testament, Psalms, it talks about that, guess what? The Messiah is going to come in riding on this colt, and he's going to be the king. And they understand that, and even looking at that. And if you look at verse 37 of chapter 19, it says, Then as he was now drawing near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees called to him from the crowd, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. This isn't just referring to the twelve. This is that disciples is referring to all of the followers that were there present. But Jesus says, he answered and said to them, I tell you that if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. But yet then all of a sudden it transitions and has in verse 41. We see here, now as he drew near, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, if you had known, even you especially in this your day, the things shall, that shall make for your peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you, and close you in on every side, and level you and your children within you to the ground. And they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation." Let's look at that this morning. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word. I pray that you would help us as we look at it to have your heart, to understand that you cared and loved these people just as you love us. And your love is so much far greater than our capacity to love. You know, we say we love our children, we love a husband or wife, we love our parents, we love our pets. But Father, your capacity for love is so great that you are willing to die on the cross to, to give your life for those who hated you, who scorned you, who mocked you. Father, help us to recognize and understand to a little bit greater degree that love. In Jesus' name we ask it, amen. First thing we look at is Jerusalem. And understanding Jerusalem, there was a love for Jerusalem that Jesus had. And the first thing we see here, where it says in chapter 41, as he drew near, he saw the city and wept over it. See, Jesus knew the people of the city. He knew them. He had passed time in there in Jerusalem. He understood who they were. And he wept for them. This, you know, there are a few times we understand Jesus wept. When Lazarus died, but this emotional turmoil. And as I think about how that applies to us, other people. You know, even looking at what was going to take place here. What about ourselves? Do you know any unsafe friends? You know, hopefully we don't isolate ourselves from others. But those that are often closest to us can elicit the greatest emotional response. Whether it be joy or pain or great sorrow. 
And the question is, who has God placed within your life who he wants you to help come to Christ? See, if you cannot think of anyone, maybe, you know, you're, not, you're the problem. And I say that because, you know, to get to know, to allow people into your life. See, we're naturally selfish. And believers, Christians, are secure in their faith because we trust the Word of God. It says, you know, if thou shalt confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus Christ and believe in your heart that God had raised you from the dead, raised Jesus from the dead, you will be saved. We have that confidence that only Jesus can save a person and provide for them. But yet God has also given us a commandment to tell others about Jesus. And the question always begs, why aren't we more concerned for the lost, for those who are unsaved? And I think it comes down to we must understand the concept of fear and love. And really, as we understand, fear is often a greater motivator than love. And that's a sad thing, but fear is often a greater motivator than love. There's a, um, a movie, maybe you've seen it, maybe you haven't, it's called Quigley Down Under. I don't know if you've seen that, but, no. but um, it takes place in Australia, and there's a, the main actor is Tom Selleck, and the audience is introduced to a character, her name is Crazy Cora. And you find out that most believe that she is crazy. But what happens is, in the storyline, you learn that she comes from Texas, and her home was attacked by Comanches, and she hid in the root cellar. And uh, she accidentally suffocates a baby because trying to keep the baby quiet. Because she's afraid that it would be given away and those who are with her. Well, the husband sends her on a ship and sends her to Australia. And a poignant event occurs when she and Quigley encountered an orphaned Aborigine baby after the rest of the family had been murdered. And a similar scene is presented in which she and the child are in danger and she must hush the baby in order to survive. She redeems herself by saving the child from the wild dogs, the dingoes, and um, allowing the child to eventually make as much noise as possible, banging and making the noise, and then she um, kills the animals and, and that are threatening the life. But to understand that sometimes, you know, you get a chance to redeem, sometimes you don't. But fear motivates us because we're afraid of certain things. And there will be times in our lives when fear controls our actions, but we must not let it dictate all of our future actions. So to understand that while fear does motivate us, we can't let it dictate all of our future actions. And love for others always has a cost. So as we think about fear, we look at love. Because even, even Paul talks about it and says, do not have a spirit of fear to Timothy. But love for others always has a cost. And so as we understand that, even in the Bible, gen, uh, if we go back to Genesis, Abraham, he paid full price uh, for a land amidst a pagan Hittite people that demonstrated the faithfulness to God and his wife Sarah. If you look back in Genesis 23:17, it talks about so Ephron's field, Machpelah, near Mamre. And uh, if you advance that slide, it goes on and talks about the field with its cave and the trees anywhere within the boundaries of the field. And what happens is we just read through that and go, that's a nice story, you know, um, Abraham bought the land. 
they offered it to him, they would have given it to him free. He didn't even have to pay. It would have been more like a lease. Here, use the land and take it. Some think, well, maybe he's trying to get more money, right? Is money the root? But as we see also, and there's been some study done in regards to the question of if he had not purchased it, would he have been obligated to fulfill the pagan Hittite rituals? So I'm, we're, I'm not sure specifically, but he paid for it, and there was a cost to provide for that. But to understand in love, there's always a cost. I think most of you understand that if you love someone, if you, whether it be a child, a parent, others, there's a cost. What does it say? To raise a child, it costs like a million dollars, right? You know, we have four kids. Boy, that, I'll tell you, what happened here? No. But to understand that, are they worth it? You know, each one of you, yes. You know, there are some organizations, I think it was, I saw a sign up in um, Washington that said, don't have children, or, you know, it's a sad thing that we're coming arriving to, because children are a blessing. And to understand the cost is worth it. It's not about the money. But even if we look at 2 Samuel 24, 24, and here we have where the ark is brought back, and the the king said to Aruna, um, No, but I will surely buy it from you for a price, nor will I offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God with that which cost me nothing. So David brought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver. What happened was at the, um, at the threshing floor, that's where the death angel stopped because David had sinned and he had taken a census and then all of a sudden, you know, three days you know, and just there was so much death. And David's heart was like, wow. He understood the responsibility of that because he loved his people. But then he buys that land and says, I will not offer something which cost me nothing. Because he knew that in order, sacrifice, there was a cost. And as we come back here, the question begs, what are we willing to sacrifice or give so that others will come to Jesus? You know, our time, money, resources, family, lives, etc. No one is willing to risk their lives for others to know Jesus. People don't want to be embarrassed or called a religious nut. See, true love for Jesus will be visibly evident in our actions through the cost we pay in helping others come to know Jesus. See, that first, as we saw, Jesus saw the city. He knew the people of the city and he wept over them. True love for Jesus will be visibly evident in our actions through the cost we pay in helping others come to know Jesus. Second thing we want to we learn about that text is that Jesus knew the potential of the city. In verse 41, it talks about the potential where it says, If you had known, even you especially in this your day. Um, it says he saw the city and wept over it. He understood because, because of his weeping that he knew that they wouldn't turn to him. And they were trying to have him become a religious political leader. If you had known, even you especially in this day, the things that make for your peace. In verse 42, I think I have 41, but it's in verse 42 where it says, make for your peace. You know, Jesus is a prince of peace and the source of true peace if they had been truly willing to receive Jesus as Messiah instead of a liberator. 
See, people were looking for a political leader to help lead a revolt and a rebellion because of the Roman oppression. I mean, it was um, to live under the subjugation of another civilization. It could just make them, here, carry this, this backpack. Remember where it talks about, you know, if they ask you to carry a mile, create another mile. You know, there are things that they could just make you do. It would be embarrassing. It's kind of like living in a land of bullies. Imagine that. If someone could just make you do whatever you, you had to, and you had to do it. See, we're not used to that because living in America, we have certain rights and abilities. But back at that time, the Jewish and the Romans, you know, the soldiers, here, do this. And they had to do it. And they wanted, they were under that oppression rule, and they ended up even eventually revolt, revolting. If you think about the South America, much was of the western part of South America, western, northwestern, was liberated by Simon Bolivar. And they still have statues of him, and they remember that name because they appreciated, they were so grateful that he would liberate it. The Spanish rule. And people saw the miracles of Jesus and believed he could liberate them from their bondage, but failed to see the priority of freeing them from their spiritual bondage. See, people are blinded by their sin, blinded by the fact that they need a Savior. Even today, our culture, we're more concerned with the theft of our personal freedoms than agonizing over the spiritual bondage that deceives our friends and our family. You know, neighbors, friends, family, as long as they don't uh, aggravate us too much, you know, we'll put up with them. But to understand the potential of them and the fact that they, they have, they could come to Christ. Does, is God using us to help them complete that task? Each opportunity to talk about Jesus to an unbeliever should be viewed as a potential for helping people understand their sin and their need for personal forgiveness against a holy God. That's the hard part is that how do we talk to people about Christ? You know, I think part of it, building relationship, being, first of all, just talking to people. You know, you talk about spiritual things, they are going to consider you a religious nut. I mean, some people will shut down. But, I mean, if you just go out to the, an individual and start talking to them, they might not, who is this person? But it does take time to build relationships with people. See, the problem is that Christians do not consider the potential of unbelievers unless they're acting like a Christian. If that person is acting like a Christian, then, they, oh, they're gone, they're lost. It's too much. See, too often we remember the list of people who have the potential to be a good Christian but fall short in their belief. Maybe there's people who you've tried, you've worked with, and then they're so close and then they turn from, turn from anything spiritual. And there are many individuals who have seemed to not live up to their potential. Even in our lives, if I were to think of even sports, if you follow sports. Okay, let me ask you a little trivia. Do you remember who was the Cardinals quarterback who, um, coming from, what was it, USC, and they had great potential to be a great quarterback for the um, Cardinals. Do you remember who that was? Matt Leinhardt, right? What happened to him? <laughs> yeah, it didn't happen, right? That's right. Okay, what about... Um, Okay, those of you who, I don't know, from Ohio State, he can't graduate basketball, Ohio State, and then he was going to be the next best thing in the NBA basketball. But he had knee problems, and uh, his name was Greg Oden. Probably never heard of him. If you uh, follow basketball, you might have, but sorry. Some of that illustrations, you don't follow sports, right over your head. But uh, Oden, 
he was one who didn't live up to his potential. But there's always people in different fields who don't live up to their potential. But some of the reasons include maybe because, oh, the fear or procrastination, lack of motivation, they got distracted, or lack of perseverance. And these can all contribute to a reason for underachieving, even for ourselves, if you think about it. Serving the potential that we have. One of the smartest, perhaps the smartest person in the planet, uh, his name was Kim Ung Young. He was doing calculus and speaking five languages before the age of five. By age eight, he was doing math at NASA and finished his PhD prior to age 15. None of this was by his own decision, and after the discovery of his genius, an IQ of over 200, he was placed on an ultra-fast-track program for his life. After accumulating a mind-numbing pile of academic accolades, he worked at NASA for years until he abruptly quit. He ended up taking a position as a normal professor at a university. You might think, why? Why, did he, why didn't he continue on? He could have been so great. But see, he had had enough. He wasn't the director of his life. And sometimes, you know, we must not focus upon the receptivity of potential a person has to follow or serve Jesus. See, we must trust the Holy Spirit and God to work in a person's life. And we must be faithful in sharing the gospel with them. See, it's the same as we grow as a Christian. What often happens is that just because someone has a potential for seemingly great accomplishments in a specific career field, it doesn't mean that they're always following God's plan for their lives. I'll give you an example. If you're a parent here this morning, um, your parents had expectations for you. And you have expectations for your parents, for your kids. And then you have expectations for the grandkids. And we always live vicariously through the next generation. I couldn't do this. I want you to do that. I want you to have this. And, you know, go on and become the next brilliant and do this or that. But, you know, that's not always God's plan for our lives. Sometimes it's like, oh, I just want you to be happy. What we should be praying for is for those individuals to follow after what God has for them. Because we don't know. And young people, others, we should be aware of, guess what? God isn't finished with us yet. You still have potential. You still have the opportunity to fulfill God's plan for your life. And we must not divert from God's plans nor fail to consider what God has for us. See, some people want to choose the easiest path or follow the plan of least resistance. The older you get, you know, you start hitting the, the button for the um, handicap so that automatic doors, right? Those are helpful because, oh, then you have to turn and do things. Or what's the path without the stairs? The path of least resistance. But I believe that we can do hard things for God and consider the potential that God has for your lives and for the church. See, the problem is that we often make decisions without truly submitting our will and our plans to God. We just make the decision because we've always done it that way. We're independent. We have lots of freedoms. But when's the last time, you know what, I'm going to give my plans to God? God, they're yours. I'm going to pray. And we have to be careful because understand to fulfill our true potential, it requires complete submission to God's plans for our lives. Jesus saw the potential of the city. He knew what they could have been. He knew even the people of, as we think about the Beatitudes and going back. But yet he also understood number three, Jesus knew the prescription for the city. The prescription. And as we think about a prescription, 
It says in verse 42 that, but now they are hidden from your eyes. Jesus had been revealed. He knew that there was a plan and purpose for this city. And there was a greater plan for this city that did not include forgiveness and earthly establishment of a kingdom. If you remember the book of Luke, the book of Luke is about action, things that were taking place. It starts off, it's like you jump in, you know, Jesus' birth, and, and then he starts ministry. He grew in stature, wisdom, knowledge, and two, and he goes in. All of a sudden, Jesus starts healing people, and everyone is getting healed. He goes through, and he's going around the area of Galilee and the northern parts. A lot of things happen. Luke includes all these details. But then all of a sudden, there's a change. And the ministry, he understood that the ministry wasn't just about healing people. He wanted to see people's lives changed. But by healing them just doesn't fix the problem. If you know the old saying, what is it? You can teach someone to, you can give someone a fish, right? What? But what's the other part of it? You teach them to fish. Because we understand that it is about the longevity, the larger plan. But the problem is we're very short-sighted. And here, the prescription for the city, we see Jesus understood that the eternal salvation of humankind was a priority and not the salvation of a single city or a people group. Often, humanly speaking, we are unable to have a clear understanding of God's divine plan for our lives or our family's lives or our church or our city or our country. It's hard to see because we're limited in our perspective and we're limited in our selfish viewpoint and our time-restricted perspective. You know, I always say, Jesus, you know, we see the past and the present, but God sees the past, the present, and the future. And he sees all of the network, if you will, of each individual. We don't know what's going on in, in the mind or the life of our neighbor. Sometimes we don't even know what's going on in the mind or life of the people who live in our house, right? Why didn't you tell me that, uh, you know, I had this project due that's, you know, tomorrow or Monday, there's so many things going on. So we're limited in our perspective. And God does not always give us what we want, thankfully. But Jesus could have healed every sick person. He could have cast out every demon. He could remove every cause of suffering, every financial burden, and every cause of mental stress. He could have done that. However, that would not bring about the salvation of the sinners nor enable Jesus to fulfill his God-ordained plan. Jesus knew that he could treat the symptoms, but ultimately he would not heal their root cause. And that was the illness of sin. Only forgiveness and being born again can change the heart of a person. A superficial change is not a true transformation. And sometimes people go through their lives with just a superficial change. If they just know enough, you know, you can go to church, you can look like a Christian, you can act like a Christian, but there's no heart transformation. And sometimes that heart transformation comes through difficult things. We talked about suffering last week. And sometimes suffering, it changes us. We don't like it because it hurts. It leaves scars in our lives. But you know what? It also enables us to glorify God. It brings us closer to know who Jesus is. It helps us to rely on others and for others to be able to see what we're made of. He, Jesus knew the prescription of the city. 
He wept over it. He saw the potential. But also, Jesus knew the prophecy of the city. If you look in verse 43 and 44 where it says, the days will come when your enemies will build embankment. Basically, the city is going to get destroyed. That word visitation, it means episcopy, the act of watching over with special reference to being present. And especially referring to an eschatological concept of the day or the hour. Talking about using in the, even in the future. There's going to be the time, day and hour. So looking at that. And he kind of can view the city and see what is taking place. And he says, as he sees it, he says, guess what? Judgment is going to be coming. Earlier in the context, Jesus is descending the Mount of Olives. And the multitudes and followers are rejoicing and praising God, saying, Blessed is a king who comes in the name of the Lord. You know, I mean, think about it. It's a parade. We don't do parades anymore, right? Especially in Arizona, it's too hot. Who wants to stand outside when it's 1,000 degrees out? But if you came from an area where their summers were actually semi-normal, you know, you'd be out, probably get red. You know, they had to pass out freezer pops. But, you know, parades were a fun thing. There's confetti. There's people throwing out candy. You know, it's nice. But it was a ce- it's often celebratory. They used to have them after wars, after events. You know, everyone's happy. Peace in, he- in heaven and glory to in the highest. And Jerusalem was, you know, rejoicing and thinking, oh, you know, a Savior who's going to liberate us from our problems. But they were blinded to, at who could bring them everlasting peace. And they were searching for someone to give them that military and physical peace. However, Jesus predicts that judgment and punishment will take place in the future. And we know as we look through history, looking back at the city of Jerusalem in 70 AD, it was Emperor uh, Vespian of the divided leaders. And his son, the Roman general Titus, who destroyed Jerusalem in 70 AD to quench the revolts of the overzealous um, Jews. And even if you think about history, you know, those who were hidden out at Masada and then eventually killed themselves so that they weren't taken over. But as far as the city of Jerusalem was destroyed, and it says the temple was completely destroyed. Not one stone laid upon another. And it was left in complete and widespread destruction. And as we think about that destruction, the prophecy of the city, I hate to say it, one of the things is that we know what happens in the end. There's those who are saying, oh, you know what, things are getting better. We need to help build up the kingdom of God and work together and, and to overcome all these things. But the Bible says that things are going to get worse. There is going to be wars, rumors of wars, but, you know, we don't know when, but guess what? Things are going to get worse. And it's going to happen in the U.S. too. We don't know what's going to what's going to take place or how it looks before the time of the tribulation. But the question I would ask you is, do you think about your unsaved family and friends being eternally lost? The destruction of souls. Ultimately, we're all going to die. We're going to die. We're going to pass on. But the question is, who are you going to affect along that way? We don't know the time or place. I mean, it's a morbid thing to think about we're going to die. But that is a natural cause of sin. But what is worse, to die and to know Christ, but to die without Christ, when you could have told them, the people around you? Is it really loving 
to allow people around you to die without at least knowing what you believe or the fact that, guess what? You can know for sure that if you were to die today, you would go to heaven. That is Jesus' heart as he expresses to the people. And let me just close with this as we look at. When was the last time that you were emotionally affected by the unbelief of a friend or family member? How long, when were you affected by their, the unbelief of them? You know, there's friends and family members are antagonistic against you. But I'm talking about if you have prayed for people and talked about them, say, you know what? Think of someone who is a friend, who is unsaved. When's the last time you poured out your heart and said, Lord, man, I would love to see that person come to Christ. Help me do it. You know, they're not believing. Jesus wept over a city that was lost, unsaved. And to allow ourselves to be emotionally affected by people who don't know Christ. And then the question is, who are you praying for to come to salvation? Now, time has been delayed in the sense that God's judgment has not come yet. There's going to be a time when this earth is going to be destroyed. When the Spirit of God is removed from this place. And until that time, God chooses to use us. We're very limited, we're very weak, we're very sinful people. But each of you can possess a knowledge of what the Bible says and to share it with others. You can give a tract. You can communicate what God has done in your life. You can show joy and the, the love of Christ through your sufferings. When we make mistakes, you know, we can just admit it and move on. People are going to laugh at us. Um, they're going, we're going to be embarrassed sometimes. But you know what? We can say, I'm going to choose to respond biblically, to love Christ, and to be a witness to those around us. And I would encourage you, but it only comes about because of the submission of our lives to the Holy Spirit, because that's supernatural. We're not forgiving. We're not loving all the time. You know, it's like someone, imagine someone calls you at 3 o'clock in the morning. You know, half the time you're awake, huh, what's going on? You know, you, or if someone bothers you when you're doing something. Think of that interruption. You know, you get frustrated, you're trying to finish something. But yet the love of Christ can constrain us so that, you know what, during those times, during those inconveniences, during those difficult times when you don't have any patience left, you can display the love of Christ or that might be the time where God chooses to allow you to be a witness and testimony to others. The key is for us to be able to respond in a way which would honor and glorify him. But it also begins with, who are you praying for specifically to come to salvation? One life submitted to Christ is going to change one life, at least. Shall we pray?